From the American dream to post-war prosperity, automobiles, trucks, vans, lorries are a core part of economic development. But they're also the result of it. Hello and welcome to Fuse from PRCA, the most influential podcast dedicated to communication, PR and marketing professionals. My name's Dan Gold, and on this special edition of Fuse, we take a deep dive into the ever-changing world of the automobile and much larger commercial vehicles. Joining me today, I have uh, guests who are going to truly enlighten us as to where we are at in terms of communicating around the motor industry. Uh, Starting first, um, Roger, if you'd like to introduce yourself... Yes, Dan. I'm Roger Ormisher. I'm Vice President of Communications and PR for McLaren North America. Uh, Been in the auto industry over 30 years now um, in a variety of roles um, from regular OEM, Volvo and Renault through the luxury OEM space with McLaren, where I currently am, and even electric vehicle startups, Fisker Automotive, back in the early 2010s, quite an adventure there. And also experience across a number of uh, different global uh, communities, so understanding communications across different uh, markets. Uh, Worked in the UK originally, uh, spent some time in Europe, in Sweden, and also spent time in Japan and uh, a lot of experience here in the Americas. So have seen communications from very many different aspects. And Richard. Yes, I'm Richard Gaddiselli. Um I have recently retired after, well, a lifetime in the motor in the automotive industry. I was an automotive journalist and editor for about 12 years and then uh, 36 years at various positions at the then Fiat Group. Um, I spent 18 years working in Turin at Global Headquarters, where I was a Global Head of International Corporate Communications and also uh, global head of international PR for all our automotive brands. Uh, and on top of that, I was also a vice president of communications for uh, Maserati. And for the last sort of seven years of my career, uh, I've been senior vice president of corporate comms for CNH Industrial, which is uh, what used to be the non-automotive activities of the Fiat Group basically farm machinery, construction equipment and trucks and speciality vehicles. And joining us today from the Motor Industry Communicators Association, Mika, is Oliver. Hello, yes. Um, the Motor Industry Communications Association is new. It's mika.org.uk and my day job is at Ford Motor Company in the press office. Okay, before we get into this interview, and we're very fortunate that Oliver's been able to join us on this one. Uh, firstly, thank you so much for putting this, uh, these interviews or this discussion together. But, but secondly, um, the association is a relatively new one, as I understand it. Can you just tell us um, how it came about? How did you bring people together for building this new association? Yes, I think at the moment with... Um, connectivity, technology, electrification, everybody is finding a new path who is an automotive PR. And the timing couldn't be better that whether you are in-house at a vehicle manufacturer, um, whether that's car, van, supplier, agencies, 
Um, the more networking and self-help that we can give each other at the moment, the better. And that's really the background that during the pandemic, people had a lot of thinking time and um, could get a new organisation started. And that's what uh, fabulously happened. For those of you who say that car is just a car is just a car, let me put it another way. Look, um, here I have a roll film camera from 1959. It uses 120 film. Um, this camera is from 1964. It uses 35mm film. And then there is this, my phone, which arguably takes the best photos. It does video and it does many things in handset that neither this nor this camera from the 50s and 60s could ever do. But they all take photos. They were they were the best available, among the best available at the time that they were released. And times change. The functionality, the convenience, and importantly, the marketplace. But do they all still take photos? Yes. I went out and took some photos about half an hour ago with this one. So I want to point out to people who don't really have a handle on the car industry. There is so much diversity. So much has changed. I mean technology wise um maybe roger we if we could start with you just from the point of view of how you've seen the industry changed and and opportunities maybe challenges uh, when in terms of how we communicate about what we do absolutely well yeah there were cars when i started and they're cars now as you know <laughs> so you're quite right the the basic tenant is still there um but how it's changed i mean they really were small internal combustion engines i think the supercars of the day had maybe 300 horsepower if you're lucky Nowadays, we're selling supercars with 820 horsepower plus. So the reality is things have changed massively. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, there are two, two I think, distinct um, buyers for our product. There's people that buy cars because they need a mode of transportation. And those that buy it because a car's got sold. And many cars have sold, and, and and people really want to experience the excitement and the and, and the uh, the the involvement of driving a car. You know, for for the, for the pure pleasure of driving a car. Now, thirty years ago, that was a what we call a stick shift here in America. Now, a, a manual gearbox car with a a lot of uh, very basic controls. Now it's uh, an electric car with uh, no internal combustion engine or a hybrid car, which combines the two. So there's, there's been massive changes, but that also goes for the communication as well. I can remember you, you were illustrating with your cameras how it's changed. I can remember one of my first jobs was stuffing eight by seven black and white photos into envelopes to send to media to get some coverage, which may happen two or three weeks later. It's now sending an email, which they've probably already published before I've hit the send button. Uh, the speed of communications and the method of communications have changed just massively. Uh, and so often now we're caught up and a new story is ahead of us. The news is happening before we're even ready to have a comment ready. Before we could have typed a comment and sent it out to the media, it would have appeared a week later. Now things are instantaneous and, and there's so many more verticals as well. I, I'm intrigued just Bringing it on from the point that Roger's just made, Richard, I'd imagine that the, the the statements that Roger's just made are, are pretty similar, but that you would echo. But I don't know of many industries that 
have to do as much work responding to rumor and people you know guessing about what the next evolution will be or this is going to be out or you know in this day and age people sat at home you know rendering their own amateur images of what they think something's going to look like as time has changed and going from being purely proactive and putting releases out there and speaking to the media picking up the phone how did do you think that time changed in terms of having to be more responsive because there are rumors about something? Yeah, I mean, the rumor mongering I mean, just sort of continues. And obviously, social media has sort of accelerated everything. And you're right, it is a sort of endless tsunami of, of, of comments, some idiotic, uh, some a bit more uh, thought out. Um, but touching on, on, on Roger's point, I mean, what's interesting in the evolution of, of, of product and your comparison with the camera, I would argue that today, yes, we all use our cell phones as a, as a camera, but they're all essentially the same. Whereas in the auto industry, we're all moving towards electrification but where each brand is still trying to create that distinctiveness that the brand has with an internal combustion engine, even though, you know, under the bonnet, you know, an electric motor is a, a much more simple um, device. And we're all trying to avoid our product becoming a washing machine or, or any white goods. And I think that's the biggest difference with your analogy with the camera that, you know, at the end of the day, whether I've got an Apple phone or a, a Samsung, uh, the camera, they all work in the same sort of, and you don't get that distinctiveness that you had with older cameras where, you know, people were fans of Leicas or Hasselblads because of the way they actually, their operating systems were all individual. So, um uh, and I think that creates, again, going back to your initial question, it, it, it generates all this interest that people have, whether they're professionals or sort of armchair experts. And that's what makes the industry so sort of vibrant, because everyone has an opinion. Actually, this is somewhere where I'd like to bring in Oliver, if I may, just from the point of view of the formation of the association and speaking. And look, we all know what industry speak is like. We we all pretty much in our own verticals, we speak to every other player in, in the marketplace. It's not like we're sworn enemies. We know what the jobs are and there is movement between uh, organizations. But Oliver, from the point of view of speaking to um, other communication professionals when we talk about this distinctiveness and and partly going back to to you know just just richard's story and and his fiat chrysler um experience and um how you know organizationally stellantis has become you know the the overarching corporation with all the multiple entities across the world where do we look at that distinctiveness because we see consolidation of of you know the bare bones of a model and they're reskinned or they're they're designed for sp specific markets that uniqueness that brand loyalty how do we make sure that that still exists in a 
marketplace moving forwards that doesn't want to be seen as white goods. Yeah, and I, I think um, all the members of uh, Mika are, as communicators, they've got a broader remit than just the metal and how it drives to Richard's point of everybody wanting to avoid being homogenous and differentiating. So um, the dealer model and whether we have bricks and mortars dealership, the agency model that's talked about, the app on your phone, your connection with the product on your drive while you're on, you know, in bed sorting out your journey for the day. That's what I notice that today's breed of communicators are getting into, which um, predecessor organizations of uh, Mika never touched. So it's way beyond the levers and um, product and services that we're dealing with is way beyond a vehicle now. And as times changed, uh, we we get to the point where you know, governments are looking at regulations around the environment, and we've got manufacturers certainly speaking to their credentials as looking towards electrification and, you know, alternative fuel discussions that we've we've been through for certainly many many years. Um, but there are challenges in terms of different marketplaces, different locations in the world. And I'll open this to the floor. Whoever wants to come into this first, and then we'll just have a convo on it. But um, in terms of marketplaces that seem more pro-electrification and those who are a bit more resistant, I'm in Canada. The rollout of the infrastructure seems to be relatively slow for electrification uh, but it's a challenge that that probably faces many countries that's just my perspective from what i observe here just open to the floor um electrification challenges some markets that are warmer to it others that are more resistant to it yeah i mean good question i mean i think uh i think the problem with the electrification discussion that we're having where where you know, we're all living in wealthy parts of the world where the, the political view is that, you know, we have the wherewithal and the financial capacity to move people into electric vehicles. But in this discourse, I find it astonishing that people assume that it's the same all over the world. There are regions in the world, namely Latin America, Africa, and a lot of Asia, where electrification is absolutely not on a list of things to do. And so the internal combustion engine, although here we're all saying it's the end of the, you know, petrol and diesel propelled vehicles, there will be huge parts of the world that will still drive around with those sort of cars yeah and dan i think you probably understand living in in north america yourself that that much of the uptake of electric vehicles here in north america has been uh, driven by incentivization both tax credits uh, and if you think about la and the, and, and the huge um adoption in la oh i got my pass into the uh, the the the, uh, the commuter lane yeah that's fantastic that's why i bought an electric car i didn't buy it because of the environment i bought it because it gets my fast pass into the uh, the the easy pass lane so i don't know yeah so a question on that does does it actually matter how people get there 
as long as they get there. What is, I mean, from from a communication point of view, if that's a way to get people to adopt these models, it works. But in terms of will that work for everywhere in the country, especially in Midwest where you've got big, wide open roads where there's no one on them, that's not going to work. No, no, and it's also a usage thing as well. Where where I live, I'm, I'm in I'm in Utah, and and you look at that, and and everyone here has a truck or a jeep. To get them into electrification is going to be really tough, as you said. Massive dif- distance between charging stations, and it's a use factor. They use their cars for or trucks, but for very different purposes. So there's a different vehicle usage thing. Much as I think in Japan, it's a similar thing. Uh, we were looking. Remember when we launched the Nissan Leaf there? The biggest problem was the infrastructure. Most people live in high-rise apartments. If you have a Nissan Leaf and you live in a high-rise apartment, and 300 people live in the same apartment, where are you going to charge it? You need a very long lead. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just just on that, look, I I live in a place where we have seven months of winter. We have snow for n- virtually seven months of the year. And um, it gets down to about minus minus 50 every year, Celsius, just to be clear on that one. Um, I'm really intrigued when we talk about infrastructure, and this is kind of a big deal here. In the winter, you plug your car in. Everyone plugs their car in because we have block heaters. It's a little heater element that goes into the sump and it keeps the oil warm and and, and lucid so that when you go to uh, start your car, you're not fighting against the components. And uh, it makes a huge difference. But for all the people who don't have garages, for all the people who use on-street parking, day in, day out, through the winter, you run the gauntlet of tripping over these massively long leads from people's front doors <laughs> to the um, to the pavement, to the sidewalk. 100% every year for the last seven years, I have tripped over a lead under snow, stuck in ice, whatever it is, it happens. I'm intrigued from the point of view of the, the management and the planning of the how do you keep it charged? Do you will it become year round that you've got to plug it in? I, look, I'm I find infrastructure and and the support networks to systems incredibly interesting. If it's the ability to go to a parking lot and where wherever you go there, there's a socket and you can plug in. It's there for the seven hours that you're in the office, eight hours, whatever it is. Then then it's fine. But but actually, I think there's more questions than otherwise. I'm very excited, personally, about electrification. I think it's a hugely interesting uh, time, and I think it's a very interesting time for communicators specifically. But just talking of different markets, let's say, and how they communicate, in a place where it's not necessarily environmental, but it's environmental facts in in terms of the built environment in cities versus rural versus, you know, uh, urban and suburban. Um, There are going to be, there is going to be such a need for a public office to really step up and bring out policies. Where Where do you think the thought process is with most governments when, you know, financially, there's been a bit of a challenge after everything with COVID and rebuilding economies, etc. America seems to be in a really interesting position in terms of investing, making a real step towards investing in infrastructure. 
should other countries look at this, and maybe this isn't a discussion for today, but should other countries look at this from the point of view of, well, actually, the, the bottleneck isn't the adoption. The bottleneck is actually the infrastructure to support the adoption. I think um, I think um, the, the biggest surprise, I think, for local and national governments is that they had hoped that they could push the infrastructure question onto the private sector. So if not the car manufacturer, then the utility companies and others. And I think they've come to the late realization that actually it's principally down to them if they want to achieve the targets of net zero that they've all set themselves. And it, as we all know, it's a very tight time frame. Um, I'm doubtful that you can achieve that in the short time allowed. But anyway, it's a challenge and maybe we'll all rise to it. But I think that's been their biggest surprise. Yeah. I think I was just going to say, I think you're right. I mean, if you look at it, it was Tesla adopted their own charging network here, which was the reason that people adopted Teslas, because at least they knew there was the, the charging network to go with them. Uh, and I think, you know, we've overcome the, fir the first big question we always had at Nissan was, was range anxiety. We've overcome the range anxiety issue. That's gone. That's gone from the public discussion, which is great. But it is the infrastructure. You're absolutely right, Dan. That's the biggest question mark now for most consumers. And, and the drive towards net zero, and, and I'm not going to get into a discussion today about um, carbon offsetting and everything that goes with that, because I, that's, a, that's a headache conversation for most governments and, and enterprise. But from the point of view and, and looking at, you know, your experience, Richard, with uh, CNH, with Case IH and New Holland, in terms of agriculture and heavy construction, um, Electrification seems to be quite the way away. Yeah, I mean, there are um, there are issues with electrifying those sort of products. I mean, on construction equipment, I mean, we, along with other construction manufacturers, have launched some electric handlers, but it's the small stuff because obviously you still need powerful hydraulics to operate that sort of equipment and the battery battery packs just don't have that sort of a density of energy in order to operate a machinery on the farm machinery side um with, uh, cnh along with you know uh, agco and john deere have all um have all proposed prototypes electric tractor prototypes and again the problem there is you know, if tractors work in a field, they need a minimum uh, life energy lifespan of eight or nine hours. And that is a little beyond the reach of current battery technology. So we've been down the following the route of alternative power supply. I mean, farms can generate their own through waste. They can generate uh, uh, their own methane gas and use that to um, heat and power the actual uh, farm, sell any excess energy into the grid, and also power their tractors. And so we, uh, so we're the first in the world. We recently launched last year um, a methane-powered tractor, which is on sale. Um, uh, so yeah, we're looking at alternative 
energy more than the electrification because of the issues that we have at the moment. So if I may take you back to, I think it was, and here's where I should have done my research, I think it was the 50s. Um, If you go into the Science Museum in London, there is a Rover turbine car there. If we look at, um, and this still shocks people around the world, if we look at electrification in terms of it has been a proven, hugely successful um, power of, uh, of motion for commerce for many years with milk floats, um, you know, people go, what, these things are electric? Yeah, and they had three wheels, most of them. Um, there have been false dawns before. There have been very publicly investments in alternative technologies, alternative um, fuels, etc. When there has been this journey and things improve and technology does get better, does it become a challenge in terms of communication? to then say, well, now this is the thing, where previously people have gone, oh, yeah, I read about that in this Tattle magazine, or I read about this in this, or the forums, you know, going back to the old days, the old bulletin, the old bulletin boards with dial-up. Even back then, we all know how much muckraking that they did. Um, is there a challenge in terms of communication when it comes to now the technology is right, now it works, now it's worth you investing your time and money in looking at it? How do you, as communicators, as professional communicators, share that narrative and give people the opportunity to experience it? Is it experiential? Is it getting people out there? Is it demo units, getting getting influential people to try things? What What is that like? And Roger, if I could start with you on that. Yeah, it's an interesting one for us, obviously, because our cars are all about emotion, speed, noise. You know, there are a sense of occasion driving a McLaren, which isn't quite as vivid with electrification. So we've obviously gone the route of hybridization first. We're introducing our first hybrid car this summer, the McLaren Artura. But for that, it's definitely letting people try it. it it's convincing people. We're, we're very much focused on uh, communicating that this is the next generation of technology. It does have instant torque, instant power, but it's also got an internal combustion engine as well to give you that that guttural feel. So um, for us, it's getting our customers to drive that car and, and, and acknowledge that they can still have excitement and fun and a, a really you know engaging experience through hybridization, where it was really, to this point, they've been internally combustion engine driven for all for, for our entire history so it's a big leap for us and a lot of communications that we need to do in very specialized ways to convince them that you know this is the right way forward from our customer base perspective yeah i think i think what's changed uh in the world that we live in now and it's all driven by social media and the arrival of the internet is the you know the rapidity of everything i mean you mentioned the turbine car Dan, um, you know, and Fiat launched a turbine car along with loads of other brands in the in the 50s. Uh, and if we think about the show cars that we've all displayed on our various motor show stands, they were always sort of flights of fancy. And so people would look at these and think and dream, oh, you know, whether it was a turbine car or the latest 
Ferrari or Lamborghini. And it was a dream. Now, what I've noticed, when you launch something, even if it's a sort of concept, people want to buy it immediately. I mean, on the on on the case uh, brand, about four years ago, we launched a, co- a working prototype, but it was a concept of a completely cabless autonomous tractor. It looked like something that you'd find r- driving around on the moon. I mean, it was completely way out there, and we and again, it was sort of this concept, but farmers wanted to buy it the next day so we were completely unprepared for this onslaught and i think that's the change now is that people see new technology and don't look at it in the way that a customer would have done in the 1950s 60s or 70s they want it and they want it now and um I was just going to say on on Mika's behalf that um, we've had decades of the industry being able to bring out the latest um, vehicle on um, with petrol or diesel. And in this new era, we're not on our own. We can't bring out an EV without planning the charge points and the utility companies catching up. So one of the things we did with the PRCA was tried to get in touch with, as motor industry communicators, with communicators for councils, for utility companies, for charge point providers, to try and get a wider dialogue going because we're now sort of not launching on our own because so much is necessary to come with us infrastructure-wise. When it comes to communication, when it comes to marketing, we've always had, we have always had, influencer marketing of some kind or another whether it has been royalty owning a vehicle and being seen with that vehicle whether it's been a celebrity a sports personality whatever it is um uh recently i'm saying recently for the podcast because it actually happened yesterday um pato award from the aaron mclaren sp IndyCar team um, got his first experience of driving the McLaren Senna. I'm really intrigued, as I see uh, Roger smiling on this one, Um, I'm really intrigued from the point of view of sports marketing, and actually I'll expand this out from the point of influencer marketing. The, The factors that come into it, and I think this is with the whole communication, PR and marketing uh, industry, we see that we're now looking at people who are influencers and we can look at their, um, you know, their following online. It's not this ethereal, they appeared on this TV show or they did this or that or the other. We can see how many followers they have, how active they are, how they speak to their fans and followers and they engage, etc. Now, the relationship with Pato Award with the IndyCar team is is different because, you know, within the mothership, there's a connection. But in terms of influencer marketing, and I'll come to Richard in just a second about, um, you know, the, the Fiat Chrysler side and also really intriguing, influential people in the agricultural heavy construction space that i'm intrigued about and how there may be differences or similarities but roger just starting with you how important is it to get visibility with people who are really really influential like pato well it's interesting that you mentioned that one we set that one up yesterday just prior to the long beach grand prix and and for us 
Um, I'm going to go back to something that Richard was talking about earlier on, about we used to very much market products. Now we're marketing brands because as everything transitions, the brand marketing is so much more important to PR and communicators than it was five, 10 years ago. And for us in McLaren, we're, we're a young automotive brand. We're only 10 years old. And especially in this market, we've not been around long. So for us, it is about that visibility and building ourselves up against more established brands like Ferrari and Maserati, Porsche, Lamborghini that have been around for decades. We haven't. So for us, we're, we're building the next generation of customers. We want them to embrace our brand through sports marketing, through our connection with Lego, through our connection with Forza and the gaming industry. All of these things are absolutely kin to, do they sell McLarens? Well, we're selling McLarens to a customer base, but we're already noticing 10 years into this market that there are 20-somethings buying McLarens now with their first, you know, they, they, they've had their first windfall and they're buying McLarens because they had a Lego McLaren or they had they played Forza as a kid or they grew up watching the F1 team and Lewis Hamilton when he was racing for us. So those things we know are increasingly important in establishing our brand and selling our product going forward. So there's less individual product marketing maybe in product PR. There's more influencer and brand PR, and that's become increasingly important. And, and it does pay off. It does have an effect. Um, we actually launched a car last year purely by using influencers, uh, and, and it sold out immediately. Richard, how about that um, Fiat Chrysler journey and and uh, with CNH? CNH, I'd imagine it's 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 a different market. It's a different shape. Yeah, uh, the, that industrial side. It's you know it's business to business, and the customers are less concerned with uh, what they would see deem as sort of fluffy PR or marketing. You know, these are people that buy fleets of tractors or trucks or buses, and so it's a different sort of it's a different sort of messaging there. On the automotive side, I mean, years ago, and we've all done this, we would give out cars to personalities, you know, A, B, C, all the way to Z list. Person. What's happened now is, as Roger said, we've become much more focused. So less is more. So you, you pick the high value uh, ambassadors for your brand. And he's right. It's more about brand and less about the individual model or product per se. Um, and we did that, you know, when when we acquired Chrysler about 12, God, it's already 12 years ago. Um, you know, that was a big communications challenge because unlike other acquisitions that we've seen or consolidation in the industry, you know, we walked into a company that had had a pretty checkered history but it had filed for Chapter 11. So we were sort of stepping into a company that, as far as cons American consumers were concerned, had gone bust. And so that was a pretty big mountain to climb. But on, on the marketing side, you know, there was a big spend on Super Bowl ads, um, getting M&M involved. I mean, it was big budget stuff to try and reposition the brand as alive and well, and it's not about to disappear again. I think there is one thing, Dan, though, that you've got to remember is the dangers of it as well, because it is instantaneous. And, and we've been used in the past to having a lot of control over our messaging, as you know, uh, and it was much easier to control messaging. It's so instantaneous now that when you're dealing with influencers, YouTubers, you know, social influence of any, any description, there is no editor-in-chief to go back to. 
and register a complaint about maybe the messaging or the way it was it was projected, you really are in the hands of the individual user. And it becomes a lot more delicate in terms of the way that you handle that relationship and the messaging that results from it. Yeah, and you're right, it's completely immediate. I mean, I think last year there was a cheat did a Super Bowl ad um, with Bruce Springsteen. First time ever that he'd done a commercial. So a big coup for the company. But uh, the next day, he story comes out that he'd been stopped for drink driving. And so he had to pull the <laughs> pull the ad that cost, you know, mi- millions of dollars. So again, you're right. Today, everything is instantaneous. I'm very intrigued about one particular area. And it's an area that could potentially cause conflict. It's an area where there could potentially be opportunity or there is opportunity but it's the it's the model for selling vehicles it's the model for getting people to sign on the dotted line it's the model of just wait a minute i've got to go and speak to my manager before i can actually make any decisions or have any power the dealership networks have their place and through history have certainly been very good for the industry but we are facing a time of change when when the you know, the Tesla model with galleries rather than having dealers came out. Other manufacturers sat up and took notice. And we're seeing certainly with with at least one manufacturer that I'm aware of, the formation of the of the electric side being a completely separate corporation, which potentially gives them the opportunity to use that gallery style model. And I'm going to ask all three of you, Oliver, Richard, and Roger, from the point of view of the relationship with the dealer networks who have been traditionally incredibly important, are there risks in terms of manufacturers going, hey, we're going to do a new model? It's nothing against you. It's us. It's, It's not you. It's us. We just want to try something. Is there risk with that? Is there opportunity in terms of cutting out the middleman. I don't want to say it that way. I'm saying it, you're not saying it. But from the point of view of times change, we're seeing people ordering, you know, uh, cars to test drive. They come on a trailer, they test drive them, they sign it on their driveway, etc. There's a company here called Kirby that does it. Um, So in terms of change, the next steps, the opportunities and the risks with the the way that people buy vehicles or lease vehicles challenges and opportunities oliver i'm actually going to start with you Mm -hmm. yeah well the last 45 minutes have been punctuated by immediacy and that it also is true of the purchase process people want to very quickly transact 85 percent of our vehicle purchases um, are on PCPs. So then p- customers aren't homing in on the on-the-road price. It is a monthly. And obviously, in Ford's case, we want that finance to be through Ford Credit. So I think the transaction and the purchase is going online. But the opportunity for the dealer on the servicing, on the parts and accessories, on the 24-hour servicing when it comes to e-transit, because that transit has got to work through the day. And so the servicing has got to go to sort of antisocial hours. And then on the car front, over the airwave updates and so on. 
Um, I think people do want a very quick click transaction. And you can see by the number of times they visit a dealership physically, um, that was seven times pre-internet. It's now barely one. People are not necessarily even test driving anymore. Interesting. Richard? No, that's, yeah, that, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, what's changed is, you know, before people would shop around and go from dealer to dealer and haggle about the price. Um, but as Oliver said, now it's, you know, this is how much I can afford per month. What can I get for that? But now customers, are at least in Europe, are arriving at showrooms. They've done their research on the Internet and they basically have a printout and they say, well, this is what I want. What's the best price or what's the best monthly price? So uh, they've taken away from the salesman all that knowledge that he had because they're doing it themselves on, on the Internet. And so, um, yeah, the dynamics change completely. Um, and I think dealers are also worried about the arrival of electric vehicles because at least I take uh, Oliver's point about commercial vehicles where they have to, you know, they have to be on the road 24-7 to earn their keep. But, a cons you know, a, a, a private vehicle, I think dealers are concerned that, you know, electric vehicles yeah. don't need as much maintenance as a conventional car. And so they're probably wondering, where am I going to make my money? really um it's and i think we're going to see especially in europe a lot more consolidation i mean i thought it was interesting that going back to your side of the atlantic dan that um, the former ceo of fiat chrysler um uh mike manley who was based oh, in detroit yeah. uh left the company earlier this year and he's now md of auto nation in the state so um, an interesting move there, but I think that the the, de the whole dealer the whole dealer network issue is is going to have some fundamental change in the next decade. And just before we get on to Roger on this one, um, I was at a dealership recently, and and the discussion was very much about the disruption that will happen there. The the principles of this dealership, the owners of this dealership were very much, don't worry, nothing's going to happen. But the reps that I was speaking to were very much, oh, we're, we're facing a change. And just at that moment, I'm sat there having this conversation and someone comes in and they're looking for a very specific model. They've read all the reviews. They've um, seen people do their own three-year reviews on vehicle, etc., and they've shared their own videos. And then the person's got an iPad, and they're starting to play um, Doug DeMuro's video on the model that they were looking at. And Doug always talks about the quirks and features of all of the models that he reviews. And the person plays the video clip. I couldn't, I couldn't enjoy it more. And they went, is this true? does this vehicle actually have this quirk? And they went, well, it's more of a feature. Characteristic. <laughs> um, and so the person went, put the kind of flapped up the iPad, went, thank you, goodbye. And they were off. <laughs> it was like, this is the influence, the immediacy. And, and how we judge, like we always used to look at 
you know, whether it was Autocar or any other publication, Car Remote, whatever, uh, and the publications over here. Um, and we used to just thumb through it and be really, really attentive to these. And I'm interested in the media side of the automotive journalism because the rise of people like Doug DeMuro and other um, online journalists and reviewers, etc., um, is really intriguing to the level of influence that they have on the purchasing decisions. But that was a by the by. But Roger, just in terms of this disruption in in dealer direct immediacy, what are your thoughts? No, I agree with you know what Richard and Oliver are both saying. I think there will be a change. I think it's more difficult in the US, as you know, from a legal perspective. The dealers have a lot of power, as you know. So it's very different over here in North America. But I think the enlightened ones have figured out they need to change their business model slightly in terms of how they deal with the customers. All of our dealers, we see as partners anyway, obviously a very small franchise. We've only got 25 in North America, but they, they act more like a VIP concierge with our customers. And that works really, really well. They're a partner to the customers. They're there to help them. Um, that you know They're there for their needs on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's more a part of where an enlightened dealer for a regular OEM probably should be going going forward. And I think that's the, the role for them in the future. I mean, there's customer events, there's dealer events, there's things that can get engaged with. There's money to be made there on the after-sales side, F&I. There's plenty of monetary opportunities. It's just embracing those rather than the front-end sale as being the key uh, precursor of most of their profit. No, I mean, yeah, I was going to say, Roger, you're absolutely right. I mean, all the premium end of the market, whether it's McLaren or Bentley, Ferrari, um, they all, the dealer, they all know, they have a personal relationship with the customer. They know every single customer. And again, they have events, VIP events. And obviously that's a lot harder when you're you know a mass market brand like toyota or ford or 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 chrysler um but i think that's the way it's going to go this more attentive customer service but wait let me just go off and see if my manager and see if i can actually do a deal for you um i'm only saying that because i every time i go to any dealers it's like okay i'm speaking to you i'm not speaking to your manager can you actually make a statement without having to go off and check okay that's where i walk down at that point that's where i walk that's the end of the deal there Uh, right there (laughs) that is the moment i have left three dealerships on that on that basis Mm -hmm. and look but is, is, isn't that like going to the bank and asking them for a loan? <laughs> Entirely. Okay. I'm all about opportunity. I'm all about, um, you know, the next big thing and the next next technology that we can apply to communication to really reach people in a meaningful way. But let's go back to this. Let's go back to a camera from 1959 and the simplicity of it. Are there any forms of communication or any forms that, you know, we can have the debate about paddle shifters and, and manual and stick shifters in a time of simplicity. Is there something that you would say, okay, magic wand, boom, that piece of communication technology is no longer around and we can focus on this. That's something that's more of a fad or a distraction and it doesn't really work for us. Or is it the case of we've got to lean in on everything? Um, first person smiling on this one is 
Roger. So on that basis, magic wand, a form of communication or something that you go, okay, this isn't a priority. I'd rather do something else. Oh, that's, that's a difficult one. Um, I think in terms of what, you know, the traditional stuff still works. Weirdly enough, even with all of the different verticals that are there, it's the one-on-one thing that really works more than anything. And I think that's the thing we missed in the pandemic was the one-on-one and really building the relationships with the media that we talk to. Uh, we've been able to do it remotely, but it's not the same. It, it's something I miss entirely. And I think, you know, it's not I'm not looking for something to cut out. I'm looking for something to add in again now <laughs> after post-pandemic. It's getting back to face-to-face with the journalists, getting to you know hear, hear them again, talk to them again, and, and really form those relationships, which is what really drives our communication. It's those personal relationships. It's the Doug DeMuros. Classic example, I was talking to Doug the other day on email. I haven't seen him for two and a half years. I need to go and see him and rebuild that relationship. And it's those sort of things I think I really miss. So... I'm not looking to cut something out. I'm not looking to add something in at the moment, Dan. Yeah, I mean, you're right, Roger. I mean, um, when we started having press events again, sort of mid-2021, mid I mean, all the journalists that came, they were so thankful to be invited somewhere, you know, to sort of actually go somewhere and meet people. And Roger's right. That sort of, you know, our business is all about, long-term relationships. I mean, that's where PR differs from marketing. Marketeers appoint agencies and they change agencies, you know, every year, every six months. And whereas we interface with the same people, we grow up with them, you know, we follow their careers as they follow ours. And so we have relationships with the media that go back 20, 30 years. So that sets us apart from, I said, sort of the marketing side. But if I could say, not that I want to get a, get rid of the internet, because obviously <laughs> it's here to stay, and, uh, and, and social media, you know, for all, you know, um, for all its negatives, you know, is a, what I what I find frustrating, and I think the journalists find it frustrating too, is that nowadays, going back to the theme of today, immediacy, motoring hacks come on an event, and 10, 15 years ago, they drive the car, speak to the engineers, get on a plane, think, mull about the thing, and then write a piece, maybe two or three days later. Now they arrive, and before they sit in our tedious or non-tedious or informative press conferences, they're busy blogging before they've actually seen the product or spoken to anyone about it. Then they come to the press conference, and then they're back up in their rooms uh, filing more copy, and then when they're out driving the product, they're stopping and doing video footage for the website. And so they're running ragged for a few hours. And what's frustrating from the manufacturer's point, and that, and this is a, and I'm sure, Roger, you get the same thing, and, and Oliver too, our sort of managers engineers that have spent the last three years dedicating their lives to this product is, you know, somebody comes along and in 20 seconds has decided whether it's good or not, simply because they've got this urgency to to feed the monster that is social media. There's a lot there about being first, isn't there? 
Yeah, and there's a lot, a lot of lack of delving into the real story. That's something I really miss. I have to say that when I first started, the journalists would really delve into the story, and they they'd ask some really telling questions that have done the research and ask telling questions. The immediacy we don't get quizzed half as much as we used to, and there's sometimes there's stories going begging that journalists don't have the time to research or, or dig into, and and that is disappointing in some ways. We like the challenge of that interaction, but it's not there anymore. That apparently varies region from region. I've not worked in uh, um, the Middle East, but uh, supposedly very interestingly there, sort of the level of journalism and inquisition was was next to nothing, I hear from colleagues who have worked in that region. I'm so glad that none of you said getting rid of this tactic or this tool. It was really investing more time in this and the opportunities that come from it and the importance of people-to-people relationships, whether it's in the business space or it's in that uh, consumer space. Media relations still matters. And it is so important to hear you say that. Now, the shape of the media, that for sure has changed because, you know, 30 years ago, pre-YouTube, pre, you know, Doug DeMuro and other, other channels of the like would you know, just not be there. But now with the democratization of the internet, media relations has changed. And a lesson for people to take away today is certainly that where, you know, whichever sector or whichever vertical they're in, it's looking beyond purely traditional media outlets within their market, whatever they work with, and thinking, are there alternative channels? It's worth investigating who people are Uh, in these spaces that have influence. I mean, perfect example, the increase of the number of agricultural websites and third-party media platforms, they would never have had the capital to run a printing press, but they can certainly run really good journalistic sites with video producers, with writers and, and, and the such like. I would like to uh, regroup with you again in the future. Uh, We have run a little bit long, but I'm calling this a special edition. And frankly, I'm sticking to it uh, on that basis. A huge thank you, uh, Roger, Richard and Oliver, for taking your time to be a part of this uh, episode. Um, We will put... Uh, details of how people potentially could get in touch with you um, uh, in the show notes, the episode notes. I hate calling them show notes. But just a final word from Oliver on um, uh, Mika and what the goals are for the next period. Yeah, the goals are networking and training. That's what our prospective members told us to focus on. And if people would just give mika.org.uk a look, Um, we'd be grateful and hopefully there's something there of interest i just want to finish with this i want to say a very big thank you for giving us not only a uk perspective today on this call but also touching in different markets around the world as it really intrigues me how different territories really are uh, influenced by how we communicate to them thank you no thank thank you it's been uh, i think it's the start of a mini series (laughs) yeah And thank you for taking the time to listen or watch Fuse from PRCA, the 15-minute-ish podcast for people in PR, communications, and marketing. If you want to find out more information about this production, you can go to prca.org.uk.